Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and the Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 227. Well, just ahead, Groupon continues to trip on its own discount shoelaces. And Adobe launches some truly impressive artificial intelligence apps, but at what cost? In a fascinating conversation with PagerDuty CEO Jen Tejada, as the incident response company wrestles with a slowdown in tech spending. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks in a Move. Joining me, help me do that on the microphone, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. And today, right here by my side, uh, right here by my side, being about 12 hours away by a very fast car. Metaphorically by your side. Right here. On the same coast. We'll count it. There we go. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? I want to start with an old favorite of mine, Groupon. That sounds like it'll be a fun one. Groupon, it trades with the ticker GRPN, market cap of about $342 million. Shares were down 24% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 48%. What's the story with Groupon? Yeah, you got a, you got a picture if you're looking at a stock chart, like you're climbing off a mountain and then it hits a cliff. So yeah, up 48% of the year, despite the 24% loss this week. Why? Well, the company took a beating, the stock took a beating after Groupon disclosed that it sold a small stake in a European electronic payments company called SumUp Holdings at a price that apparently was far lower than investors expected. So I want all of you, all of our listeners, Ben, you too, I want you to get the little calculators in your big head, or maybe some of our listeners have big calculators and little heads. Either way, okay, you ready? Ben, you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. All right, so Groupon owns 2% of SumUp, okay? Okay. Now, Wall Street thought that all of SumUp was worth $8.5 billion. So, all right, so here's the math part. Okay. So, how much is Groupon's 2% of SumUp? So, 2% of $8.5 billion. That's more math than I can do in my head. Don't do it on your toes. $8.5 billion, 2%. It's $170 million. Okay. So, $170 million. So, this week, Groupon sold about 10% of that stake. So if it's $170 million, they sold about 10%. More math. What is 10% of $170 million? That Anybody? one I could probably do. <laughs> Give it to me. It should be about $17 million. That's right. It should be about $17 million. You're doing well. Groupon actually sold 9.4%, but who's counting? I guess we're all counting now. But here's the problem. And so understand this. Groupon is a business that's not doing well. Wall Street's like, look, even if Groupon doesn't do well, they've got this massively valuable stake in this, in this uh, European payment processor sum up. So if they sold 10% and they got 170 million, at least the valuation's holding from last year. But here's a problem. Groupon didn't get 17 million for that 10% of their holding. They didn't get 15 million. They didn't even get 10 million. Groupon only got about $8.9 million for that stake that Wall Street thought was worth 17 million. And they could only find a buyer for about 9% of their stake. And that suggests at best the value of SumUp has been cut in half in just a year. 
So if you're thinking Groupon had this this value sitting in the back uh, uh, of their filing cabinets where they're holding and some up, but that value is cut in half, maybe the value of Groupon is cut big time too, a big red flag for investors. And that's why the shares got smoked this week. What was Wall Street thinking? Why would they believe that SumUp was so valuable? Maybe because Groupon told them it was that valuable. Yes, I found some sound here. Check this out. This is the chief financial officer, Damian Schmitz. And December 8th last year, speaking to the Barclays Global Technology Medium and Telecom Conference and taking questions from an analyst, Trevor Young, and explaining why Groupon really wasn't a big financial risk of going broke. Don't you worry. We've got this sum up. It's going to be really valuable. We've fixed our credit facility. Everything's going to be fine. Here's Groupon CFO Damien Schmitz back in December. We renegotiated our credit facility in the okay. third quarter, and that was to provide a little bit more flexibility in the near term as we navigate this turnaround. Um, additionally, you know, we're we're executing well underway on our yep. cost takeout actions. That's going to put us in a much better position going forward. Um, I'd also remind you on our balance sheet that we have a minority, passive minority stake yep. in sum up. It's a 2.29% ownership stake, and that can be a source of capital for us okay. in the future. So net net here, you know, we believe we position ourselves well. We have some flexibility in the near term as we navigate the turnaround on uncertainty. And, uh, you know, laser focused on generating cash flow organically on a go forward, sustainable, reliable. Basis. Got it. So just to recap, potentially flipping to positive free cash flow. You seem pretty confident on that front. Cash on hand, available credit facility, which was just renewed, rene renegotiated, as well as a potential minority stake to monetize. So a lot of different levers there to rely on, even if we're in a challenging macro environment. All right, here we are 10 months later. The macro environment, not so challenging as we might have guessed last year, but Groupon's balance sheet, yeah, that one's challenging. Corey, I just want to double check a little bit of extra math here. Please. It, uh, I, I know you said Groupon's not doing well. Shares are down 24% in the last week, but it looks like shares are still up almost 50% for the last year. Now, I've, I know we've done a lot of head math, but that sounds like a company that's doing well to me. Well, well, welcome to my former life as a short seller, where you say, no way is this thing worth as much money as they say. They say it's worth a lot over the course of a year. Revenues for this company um, uh, are going down. Revenues uh, for 2021 were about a, just under a billion dollars. They're about half that right now in the last trailing 12 months. Uh, they, they're losing money like crazy. They've lost $80 million in the last 12 months. Two years ago, they were profitable. So the, half the revenue, fantastically larger losses. The thing on their balance sheet, the value gets cut in half. Any short seller out there who figured this out and guessed it right is still losing money in the stock because the stock, although it's down 25% or whatever in the last week, is up 50% for the last year, about. Math, not our friend, yeah. but Groupon uh, in trouble. Yeah, with some of those other numbers, that makes a lot more sense. All right, Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to take a look at another old favorite of ours. It's actually not true. A company we've never looked at before. Duckhorn Portfolio with the great stock ticker, Ben. Duckhorn Portfolio. It actually trades with the ticker NAPA with a market cap of about $1 billion. Shares are up 1% the last week. Last 12 months, shares are down 34%. What's the story with Duckhorn Portfolio and why is it sticker Napa? Well, it's ticker is Napa because 
For those of us who know Duckhorn, it's a pretty good wine. They make a really nice Cabernet. I mean, you know, it's, nice. it's, I say nice. It's average. It's okay. But it's, 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 it's a good Cabernet from Napa Valley. It's a collection of wines from Napa Valley. Um, they've got uh, all kinds of stuff, not least of which Costa Brown, one of uh, Pinot Noir from Russian River Valley that I'm a big fan of. Um, uh, and these guys, this is a special, special company uh, because they're trying to do a publicly traded company with high expensive wines. So as I mentioned, Duckhorn, Decoy, a little cheaper thing, Goldeneye, Costa Brown, fantastic premium wine. Their wines tend to average $20 to $200 at retail. Now, higher-priced wines also have higher profit margins. Yes, that $100 bottle doesn't actually cost 10 times as much as a $10 bottle, although the dirt under it might. But since it's come to public a couple of years ago, the stock has been a disappointment. And uh, after uh, really a, a disappointing run as a public company, the surprise move, the longtime CEO, Alex Ryan, departed from the company after 35 years. He's been CEO for 18 years. His departure just months after the CFO, a Laurie Bidone, Bidouin, I don't know if it's French, she left as well. CFO leaves, the CEO leaves. People don't like that. Uh, the company says Ryan's departure is because of personal reasons. They didn't say what those reasons are. And they named an interim CEO, uh, Deirdre Mallon. She comes from uh, uh, Diageo, uh, uh, North America, and she had been the CFO of the company. Uh, so she's got a big experience um, in, uh, uh, in, in the beverage business. But... This argument, this argument that luxury wines are going to be okay, that they're good in a good economy, the company is still making the case that luxury wines are good in a bad economy, that uh, when people don't have money to buy uh, a lot of wine, they want to make sure whatever they spend is going to be the best stuff out there. Uh, they've got a guy who's an executive vice president, former Wall Street guy, uh, a sharp guy named Sean Sullivan, who is the chief strategy and legal officer for the company, Sean Sullivan, Talking on their conference call this week, which did not have a CEO, it had an acting, an interim CEO, uh, Sean Sullivan talking about what's going on in the wine industry right now and why that luxury market should be doing well right now. I think a look at the total wine industry is less uh, impactful than looking specifically at the luxury category, which we define as $15 and above. Um, the data that we see, which is, is a mix of the um, Circana data, which, which focuses a on about a third of our business, the scanner data, and other data points that we have and, and look at uh, for the broader industry and for us specifically, show that luxury itself is turning that corner and starting to see a reacceleration. I think our viewpoint is, is probably a, a function of a number of factors. Some of it is related to the macroeconomic environment. Some of it is related to the choice of younger consumers who uh, some of whom may say, I'll drink a little less, but I want to drink a little better. Um, and some of it might just be the, the sort of time of year we're going into um, with, uh, with the upcoming uh, fall season and holidays. But I think if we look at it all together, um, I, I think what, what we feel buoyed by is an overall, uh, you know, deceleration of the decline. And, and now we're seeing some acceleration. We're, we're cognizant that the industry as a whole won't be a straight line. There'll be some wobbles faster growth or slower growth. Uh, but we like the overall trends, but we also particularly like our ability to take share and outperform our peers. Um, and that has been the hallmark of, and something we've talked about uh, on this call and on other calls is, is a very consistent uh, long-term uh, pattern that we have established through the work of our sales force and the organizational uh, prowess that I think we bring to the table. 
So um, our outperformance, I believe, will continue in addition to uh, what we hope is, is, a, is, a, um, is an industry that really has turned the corner. So, yeah, we hope it turned a corner after not too much wine. You don't want to be drinking a lot of wine and turning corners. Not safe. You run into something. <laughs> Some good life advice there, Corey. Um, I'm it. here to help. I'm here to help. Let's hope that the interim CEO from Diageo uh, helps them uh, turn a corner indeed uh, and protect that Costa Brown. Uh, I, I, I guess I should uh, report my, my uh, full disclosure. I am a subscriber or whatever uh, to buy some of the early releases from Costa Brown every year, which I have yet to regret because that wine's pretty good. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at that software giant Adobe. Software giant Adobe trades with the ticker ADBE, market cap of about $255 billion. Shares are up 8% the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up a nice, solid 96%. What's the story with Adobe? 96% in a year. I would take that any day or any year. Uh, analyst meeting this week. Their annual meeting with Wall Street analysts uh, coincided with uh, uh, their Adobe Max user conference, which took place this week in Los Angeles. At the analyst conference, that's always the one I'm sort of paying the most attention to, um, they go through their sort of exactly what they're doing in their business, near-term financial outlook. Uh, and it was it was generally perceived to be pretty positive. I, I listened to a lot of it, uh, not all of it, and I follow the company a lot too. It's, it's a fascinating company. Maybe most importantly, I, I use the products a lot. You You probably do too, Ben, right? Use the audio, yeah, premiere? decent amount. I, I I use Adobe, you know, probably daily, multiple times a day. So you could say I've used it before. I'm going to call you say you've used it before. Um, I also a big user of Microsoft, uh, sorry, of Adobe, of Adobe uh, uh, Illustrator, uh, and a little bit of Photoshop for some of the graphics that you see on our at Drill Down Pod Instagram account and at Drill Down Pod uh, Twitter, as well as the at Corey TV Twitter. So get involved. Now we we cover this company. I think it was last quarter. It might have been six months ago. But they, the stock is up at 96% because there's a belief that they're going to benefit from AI uh, and, 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 and easier ways to create stuff. But one can make the opposite case, that if it's easier to create stuff, you don't need to use the, the high-end pro tools like Photoshop and Illustrator and you use Premiere and, and those things that, that professionals use that regular people can't make sense of. Um, so an interesting challenge here. So uh, last quarter, they talked about all these new uh, um, AI things they would have. And so I quickly ran to my trusty Photoshop and trusty Illustrator and found that I thought the tools were crummy. They weren't even available. They were available in beta versions. The success wasn't very good. I didn't think they were doing much. Well, I went back and tried some of these things after listening to the CEO talk about it uh, during this analyst day that went on for many hours this week. Um, now, as analysts say, the focus was squarely on the company's growing breadth and, and the depth of their generative AI uh, tools, the generative AI tools. Um, and although they didn't update the guidance, as I mentioned, the stock was up, as you mentioned, the stock is up. Um, and their second generation of their Adobe generative AI model, the one I ripped, is freaking awesome. Ben, I was, I was playing with this thing for a couple hours uh, yesterday and a little bit today, um, and it, it's... It's really different than than uh, Dall E or Stable Diffusion, which I like in the, in the visual for the visual stuff a lot, um, or Bing Images, which are using the Dall E model and putting something else I can't figure out on it. But I don't know if it's different vectorization or not. It doesn't seem to be that different from the Dall E images. 
but this stuff is different and it's really solid. Um, and, you know, I, as I mentioned, I ripped the software a couple months ago because it didn't yet work, but it works now. And the website, uh, the, the website version in particular, what's it called? Firefly, um, firefly.adobe.com. Uh, ben, you got to check it out. It's really cool. You know, you enter some text of like, you know, woman standing next to waterfall at sunset with a blue bird flying across. You type that image in and you get a realistic image that's, it's just impressive. And so for the world that's trying to create lots of content for social media and and for for all the posts that they're making and for all the websites they're building and for all the mobile images and TikToks and everything else that they're building, this stuff is easy for anyone to create. And it does seem like it might open up a big market. That's certainly what investors are thinking. That's certainly what Adobe is thinking. And that is certainly what Adobe president for digital media, David Wadhalwani said uh, when he addressed uh, the analyst crowd this week. Here he is. It saves us a lot of time when we're using those, those features. In fact, a lot of what you saw at Max today uh, was generated with Firefly in our, in our applications. The, the teams were able to generate a lot more content much more quickly. Um, and they tell us it's saving a lot of time. And you can see this in the numbers. Ashley this morning talked about the fact that, that Firefly and Generative Fill uh, in Photoshop uh, has been uh, adopted faster than any other feature that we've ever launched. And the reason for that is it works incredibly well, it's easy to find and easy to discover, and it fundamentally changes what our customers can do with the tools. Um, but the other thing that's also exciting to see is the, their intent, right? Eight out of 10 creative pros are getting excited about generative and feels like it can really help their careers. Why can it help their careers? It can help their careers because if I'm an imaging uh, person that's really focused on vectors, now I can get into uh, to imaging and I can get into video and all these other disciplines, it really broadens the palette that anyone can think of themselves as part of a broader creative community. Uh, and as we go forward here, you can expect to see a lot more control and guidance provided to the users so that they can really take what's in their mind and create it with generative. And so you can imagine how they believe that they're going to create so many creators by making image creation as simple as typing words um, and uh, that th they might get a lot more business out of this. And uh, we'll check out the, uh, check out the uh, drill down pod Instagram account at drill down pod. And you'll see some of the images we've been creating with, I've been creating with um, uh, uh, Microsoft Bing uh, image and, and Dali and stable diffusion. And those have been pretty cool, but I'm a hundred percent going to start to put the uh, Adobe stuff to work as well. See if we can compare them and, and listeners. For those who have eyes or unable to use them, check them out on Instagram. Check them out on the Twitter. For the rest of you, I'll describe it. But you don't have to do anything to hear this really cool conversation with PagerDuty CEO Jen Tejada. Uh, Jen Tejada, a fascinating company, PagerDuty, that uh, anyone in tech knows, anyone outside of tech doesn't. It alerts companies when problems have happened. It lets them know where the problems are and even how to fix them. Uh, the company's had some challenges lately. Uh, fascinating conversation. Like I said, check this out right after this. Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical events or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more. All within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A, dot com. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now, as promised, by Jen Tejada. She's the CEO of PagerDuty. That's one word, strangely. 
But uh, Jen, glad to have you uh, from not too far uh, from me right now in Northern California. Um, Pager Duty uh, uh, is a fascinating company that um, I think people don't generally know unless they've encountered it, although you're reaching into more and more businesses. How do you describe what PagerDuty does? Well, if you're a software developer or a CIO or CTO in any meaningful business that has a digital brand, whether that's B2C or B2B, people know of us. Um, but if you're not a technologist, it may not come up at cocktail parties. We are the global leader in digital operations management. And what that means is we have a cloud native platform called the PagerDuty Operations Cloud that really has become the best way to automatically detect, orchestrate, and manage unplanned, mission-critical, high-impact work that really keeps digital services and digital businesses always on and productive. There was a point in my life when I realized I couldn't speak millennial speak. And so I had a friend who would uh, text me quite often with emojis, and she became known in my family and friends as, as the emoji coach because it was so helpful to uh, help me um, uh, communicate in the way that uh, the millennial wanted to be communicated to. I, I find it uh, similarly that your company uh, delivers services or helps company deliver services in the ways that people expect them now, not in the ways that they might've done so in the 1980s, which is that rather than sort of speed up a process, what you guys are actually doing is instantly providing uh, and diagnosing and providing a, an answer to a problem that may have just occurred so that, I don't know, so a, a game might stream when it wasn't streaming all of a sudden or a banking transaction might complete. Is that a fair way to think of your company? It is. I mean, it, um, a lot of people were watching uh, Sunday NFL football last night. Yes, and we were. Uh, Fox is one of our customers. And uh, the Sunday NFL ticket is really hot. Um, live stream. And it, you'd be really frustrated if you were a big 49ers or Cowboys fan last night watching and you your 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 stream was well, disrupted. Well, that was an NBC game, an but, but I would have been very frustrated. Uh, and I have been very frustrated with that. That was an NBC uh, game. Well, Comcast is a customer as well. So. <laughs> I get mixed up on who owns which. Um, but I think to your point, uh, we, we do have these expectations as digital consumers and our expectations are on the rise. We expect everything to be perfect. We expect it to be instantaneous. We expect this beautiful experience. And when it doesn't happen that way, uh, the barriers to entry are lower. There are alternatives you just mentioned. You know, there are alternatives for streaming platforms. There are alternatives for travel. There's alternatives for banking. And so it's become more and more important for business customers to ensure that their digital services, their digital brand experiences operate effectively all the time, anytime, even under significant pressure. And one of the hardest challenges is that many of our customers still learn about major business impacting or customer impacting incidents from their customers. Right, right. You get the tweet that says, hey, this this product isn't, the app, the United app isn't working right now and I'm trying to catch a flight. And you see it in a tweet, you don't see it exactly. from your own team. Exactly. And, uh, and so the customer, you know, is a monitor now on, on software services, but um, with the shift that we've seen to distributed computing and the uh, consumption of the cloud becoming mainstream, what we're finding is these automated technology ecosystems have become harder than ever for humans to manage. And that requires a platform that leverages AI uh, to help detect and like I said, orchestrate the right set of problems to the right small team of experts and people who are responsible for ensuring that those services work well. And if they're not working well, that you can leverage the benefits of AI to both diagnose, 
um, triage and then uh, remediate or recover those services so that you don't lose revenue, um, you reduce the risk of a material operational failure, and importantly, you continue to increase the velocity of your innovation because we're all trying to build better services and products for our customers. Well, I think that I guess my point I was ineloquently making, which is that our expectations are different now too. That that people in 2023 have different expectations than people did in 1983. 100. And some of the systems are just that old, where you'd send in a ticket or write to customer service and hope for a response eventually. Yeah. The other thing is most companies are structured to operate in sort of an antiquated way. If you think about it, most companies operate with a command and control structure that was really designed on the military, you know, back during World War II. And yet the technology that consumers interact with and the way consumers operate in a digital uh, or virtual world is much more instantaneous. So we see our customers trying to cross what I call an operations chasm, going from sort of physical operations, analog command and control, sequential operations, you know, linear operations framework to more of a distributed uh, virtual and automatic real-time operations environment. And the only way any company, whether it's a Fortune 100 company or a you know, new innovative startup in a new category is going to be successful is if they can adopt real-time operations by leveraging automation and, and AI to do that. Now, I've heard it referred to, I've heard, I've heard something different than what your company does referred to as incident response. And I don't understand the, the, the nomenclature difference because it sure sounds like the same thing. It's a great question. So, so incident response is a subset of what I would call real-time digital operations. Incident response is the, the uh, issue of a problem turning up somewhere, a contributing factor somewhere in your software or uh, technology ecosystem that causes a number of other dependent failures, turns into a material operational incident for the company. And you know we've seen that in the travel industry and in airlines. We've seen it in banking, in public cloud services, in streaming, uh, in all of the sort of consumer e-commerce spaces that you and I are uh, used to engaging with as consumers. Um, Broader, more broadly speaking, digital operations is all of the real-time operations and opportunities that exist when you're running a business using automation in each one of your functional organizations. For instance, like getting ahead of Uh, a potential opportunity and um, addressing it effectively, whether that's managing inbound traffic to your website and converting it more effectively or seeing inbound traffic, um, you know, in in an e-commerce environment and being able to manage that more effectively. So the idea is basically detecting something is happening that is unexpected, unstructured, orchestrating that opportunity or that challenge to the right people, whether they're in finance or they're in engineering, software engineering, and then uh, addressing that opportunity or issue as quickly as you possibly can while reducing your labor costs, but improving or optimizing your revenue growth. It seems like you must be really stitched into um, the organizational fabric of a company, not just the IT fabric, which is to say, you know, once upon a time, there might've been a 200 person conference call to figure out whose problem this is that's crashing our app. But if you could, if you've got to route it to just the six people that are responsible, that means you've got to know who's responsible. And that means all of them have to, in some way, uh, interact with PagerDuty. That is part of the intelligence in our orchestration of work that really differentiates PagerDuty from 
other ticketing systems or on-call platforms that are out there. The fact that we actually can connect the right set of events and problems to the right people, that we use AI within our AI ops solution to determine whether a set of events is conspiring to become a major incident. So 100 events coming in are not 100 separate problems. There may be 10 separate problems and one is one that you should care about. By being able to do that event consolidation and that correlation, it enables us to orchestrate only the most important work to the right set of teams and not bury people in noise, which is what, you know, sort of the less intelligent systems that are out there do today. To your point, do you really want 200 people getting on a call or do you want the right six working on the thing that creates the biggest risk for your business or addresses the biggest opportunity? Are you, um, as you make sales, because it seems like the way you've started to make sales and get into new companies, get your foot in the new doors, is have some IT guy with a, with a credit card who can get his team of six on board right away and then kind of creep uh, and spread out throughout the, uh, the, uh, the company. Yeah, we have a true land and expand motion where our product is product-led. Generally, uh, a software developer or an ops person identifies an issue and looks to PagerDuty to help them both leverage our over 700 inbuilt integrations to all of the most important observability tools and ticketing systems, security environments in the world, uh, you know, hooking into those in a matter of minutes to be able to build a rotation and start to um, detect and orchestrate work for their team or their particular product. Um, it works very well, very quickly. It's a very fast time to value uh, product. And so you see, as you mentioned, that sort of virality or that spread of the solution across uh, a software organization. But oftentimes what we find is that bottoms up motion meets a top down initiative, a VP of infrastructure or a CTO that is really trying to digitally transform their business to try and leverage platforms to drive service ownership across their developer culture, or to standardize on a single platform that can meet the high scale, high resiliency requirements of, of a large enterprise. I mean, over 70 of the Fortune 100 are pager duty customers, and they have very high expectations in terms of both fidelity, resiliency, and security uh, that pager duty meets for them. But I'll bet that's changed for you in terms of starting out with that, uh, what do you call land and expand to the yeah. top down uh, approach, the CTO assign a bigger contract. We like bigger contracts, not smaller contracts, but yeah. it's a very different sales process and a slower one. It is a very different sales process and it does take longer. Most of our new customers still land through self-service through our e-commerce offering. And I think that speaks to the efficacy of the product for the user. Um, but the vast majority of our sales force is focused on expansion and more of these sort of what you would call top-down or engagement with leaders throughout the developer, IT, security, customer service uh, organizations within a business to really uh, instantiate PagerDuty as a standard across the organization. And what these leaders understand over time is that PagerDuty can help uh, accelerate their digital transformation, it can help them drive more value faster uh, through cloud adoption, it can help them reduce uh, the cost and risk of an operational failure within the business, and also can help them grow and protect revenue. But most importantly, what we see from CIOs and CTOs today is that they really are under pressure to do more with less. They're trying to innovate faster, yet more efficiently. You know, as the the macro environment has 
put pressure on headcount growth. We've seen a lot of engineering leaders or software leaders or IT leaders say to us, you know, help me make room, make capacity in my budget so I can invest in innovating in generative AI, for instance. And so I need to be able to do more with less. And that's where the automation across PagerDuty's platform really demonstrates immediate improvements in productivity and cost efficiency. Well, and I wanted to talk to you about AI, and I also want to talk to you about the the, the way the deals are kind of changing, or the 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 uh, both both. Well, let's talk about deal size first. So, um, you guys have suggested in recent conference calls. Indeed, it looks like you had some layoffs in January. Um, uh, your chief revenue officer leaving, among uh, others, um, and that uh, the, your subsequent conversations uh, with Wall Street at least said that that deal size wasn't coming in kind of as hot and and and, and heavy as it had initially if I can paraphrase, uh, and that similarly small and medium-sized businesses are also not jumping in with both feet um, and that uh, there's just concern about spending in technology. Yeah, I, we've said for the last several quarters and, and what I've seen when I'm out talking to customers is I'm spending a lot of time with customers are a few things that have been consistent for the last few quarters. And one is a highly engaged customer base. I mean, this is a customer base that sees PagerDuty as a critical strategic platform, uh, that sees it as a primary sort of platform for engagement for operations. Uh, and so a high level of transactions. So customers are engaging with us very frequently um, over the last several quarters but smaller transaction sizes than what we had seen historically, which I really think is the result of a more conservative buying environment. And I would tie that back to market volatility. We're all seeing this consistently volatile market, with, um, which is very hard to read. Like, are we going to see a soft landing? Are we going to see uh, improvements in the macro environment? You know, jobs reports are strong, but uh, we're, we continue to see longer sales cycles um, with more approvals and just more uh, caution and scrutiny across the board on, on spending. And, you know, we're hearing about that across the industry. I don't think that's specific to page or duty. You know, the, last, the last jobs report was all these positive numbers, except for the sector that the Bureau of Labor Statistics called information, which is technology. And that was negative. I looked at the whole list and thought, really the one place where I'm sitting here in the Bay Area and that's where the that's where things are slowing down. Well, I, I think to put that intriguing. in perspective, though, we saw, I mean, huge headcount growth in technology over yep. the past several years. And what you've seen is that growth slowed down, but a lot of jobs created. And in, you know, the Western world, still a dramatic uh, labor shortage for technology workers across the board, which is why I think uh, generative AI is such a positive uh, advancement because we can, you know, improve the efficiency and productivity of you know these these fantastic uh, high cost workers and um, get more done uh, without having to continually increase headcount growth. Well, I, so that's the last point I wanted to hit is is generative AI and, and its impact on code. So I was I was listening to the Oracle conference call a few weeks ago and was really struck by Larry Ellison's comments that Cerner, this multi billion dollar acquisition they did last year, they're rewriting all of the code of this of Cerner, which longstanding healthcare software company, but they're using AI to do it and using generative AI to do it. And so they're doing it really quickly. But I got to thinking that, well, it's also going to mean just a ton of new code being dumped on these organizations. And while it might work better, it's just going to be different. And so for a company like yours that is trying to monitor every sort of uh, uh, square inch of that code and figure out what's working, what's not, and where the problems are, that's going to be a whole new set of issues just because so much code can be rewritten 
with generative AI. Exactly. And pushed into production automatically. So long term, we see that as an absolute tailwind because uh, more code means more complexity. Today, the complexity of the technology ecosystem is already well beyond uh, human ability to manage uh, and and anticipate even what's going to go wrong at any given time. And so as we see more code being deployed, uh, that complexity will result in more incidents and will require you know, more intelligent platforms to help discern which events are important. Do we have to uh, uh, apply people and teams and problem solving to? Which events can we automatically uh, manage and, and uh, which events over time are, are going to become long-term problems? So uh, I think this is, like I said, a long-term tailwind for PagerDuty. Super interesting. Jen Tejada is the CEO of PagerDuty. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, coming up next in the drill down, the bite, one number that tells us a whole lot more about PagerDuty. The drill down is brought to you by BrainTrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. BrainTrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. We are back with the drill down the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. Ben's with me as well, of course. Ben, PagerDuty. Mm-hmm. Interesting conversation, interesting company. They talk about uh, how they're moving towards bigger customers and how that's changed the way they sell stuff. What Jen Tejada did not tell us exactly, but here's your number. How, well, uh, uh, how many of their customers spend more than 100 grand a year, the big customers for them? The answer. I'm hoping we're not going to have to do a lot of math because I feel like we've done a lot of math in this episode. Okay, we won't have to do any more math. I'll just tell you the number. But the customers that pay spend more than 100 grand a year are just, here's the number, the bite, the one number that tells a whole lot. 5.1% of PagerDuty customers spend more than 100 grand a year. The rest are small. But that number is up from 4.5% a year ago. So from 4.5% to 5.1% in a year. And that really shows how their, their strategy, they call it, I think she called it land and expand, uh, how they just get their foot in the door. And that process really is working, that the customers that they have who spend a little eventually start spending a lot. And that's a good sign for this company that they can grow those customers to $100,000 a year, more customers. It's easier to sell an existing customer more than it is to find a new customer at all. All right, thanks for listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Thanks to Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire, and my fabulous co-host this week. We're grateful. Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. <laughs>